Hi everyone, my name is Steven Wakabayashi and you're listening to Yellow Glitter, Mindfulness Through the Eyes and Soul of Queer Asian Perspectives. This episode, we're joined by an extra special guest, JT, Jonathan Tolentino. JT is the program director of the Combined Internal Medicine Pediatrics Residency Program at Jackson Memorial Hospital and Associate Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at University of Miami. He works with BIPOC and LGBTQ plus communities, as well as uninsured and underserved population here in Florida. Welcome to the podcast. So excited to talk to you about so many things. (laughs) (laughs) I'm very excited about being here as well. This is going to be amazing. And the question that I like to start off with all of my guests is just a check-in around how are you doing this time? Uh, The pandemic is going on to now year two, dealing with vaccinations, quarantines, and just wondering, how are you doing at this time? I always put it in different perspectives. One is I'm okay, but I'm very mixed. And I think that's probably the best way to describe my emotions. It's exciting that we have tools um, in our momentum to prevent COVID in many of our, many of our communities and many of our patients, but it's also, it's also frustrating because so many people haven't been getting the COVID vaccine and have not um, um, really been protecting themselves against COVID and seeing these surges that have happened that could have easily been preventable in many communities and many areas. It's sad. It's frustrating. It's tiring. I work with many of my colleagues that are just tired and, and exasperated. And at the same time, it's that entire feeling of we're, we are so close yet we're so far. And it's just, it feels like something that could have been really obtainable. doesn't seem as obtainable as quickly as we once thought. And I think that's just how I think many of us in the medical community have felt. I think one of the shining stars in this entire fight has actually been the LGBTQ community because we've had such a high vaccination rate compared to many other communities. And so that makes me very proud um, to be able to say that, hey, you know what? We as a community have taken this very seriously and two of the largest groups of uh, vaccinated patients have been the LGBT community as well as the Asian American community here in the United States. And while that makes me feel very proud, especially being here in South Florida and being in, quote unquote, one of the red states, it's it's one of those where I'm looking around, I'm like, oh my gosh, why isn't everybody else doing this? <laughs> there is a lot of lived and learned experience that comes through first the LGBTQ community with the AIDS epidemic and just being conscious of everyone's statuses as well as everyone's health to be Mm -hmm. personally accountable, which I think was really the big kind of tenant coming out of it. For the Asian community with SARS and all of these things that happened in Asia had prepared the various Asian countries to be ready, even though the vaccine was not available at the time during the height of it and just taking personal accountability to wear masks, distance with one another, reduce public outings it's fascinating but also upsetting too i agree i was looking at the list of countries in order of the vaccination percentages and the u.s although it had been one of the first countries with a mass produced ready vaccination 
is not at the top of the vaccination rate in the whole world. There are smaller countries like Malta, for example, that have <laughs> almost 50% more vaccinations than we do currently today, which is shocking, upsetting, so many feels. Yes, so many feels. And I think that through our two communities, live experiences, our past traumas, through the epidemic and through all of this, but more importantly, it's that sense of we know how to get out of this. And I think that's especially many in the LGBT community, many in the Asian and a lot of Asian communities see this as that this is how you get out of this. It, it creates this weird dichotomy where you theoretically understand to some extent this personal responsibility, personal liberty conversation a lot of people have about why they're not getting vaccinated or why they won't put on a mask. But at the same time, it's funny, community is such a big part of both of our cultures, right? From the LGBT community to our Asian backgrounds where family, culture, and actually understanding the other and how, how your actions for one can actually affect so many other people. It really becomes that, that viewpoint that personal liberty also means personal responsibility, but that this is a true thing that everybody has to do together and, and that your one action affects so many other people. And I think that's what gets lost in a lot of this personal liberty conversations and what have you. I hear it all the time when I'm talking to my patients or talking to people in the community about vaccinations. But I think that's the part that is, that's really tough. When I see what's going on and we as physicians are trying to help people make it through. I have many patients come to me after they were in the hospital, intubated, they've been on life support or they needed oxygen just to breathe. They're lucky they, they're alive still. A lot of yeah. intubated patients, that's the end of the road for them, especially with COVID intubation. Exactly. And they all come to me and they're like, oh man, I'm, I'm sorry, doc. I'm the stupid one. I didn't get vaccinated. And I look at them and I just say, yes, I have no other comment because there's nothing else I can do at that point except say, you just get the vaccine at this point. And it's, it's tough. It's tough. So I guess, you know, going back to that, to your first question is there's a lot of good that's happening right now that makes me really excited and, and makes me feel really positive about things. But there's many things in our, my day-to-day -day life that it's just tiring and that allostatic load that you carry as a provider can just be overwhelming sometimes. As a, as a teacher and as a leader of a, of a training program, you see what you're going through and then you see what your trainees are going through. And it's almost unfair to them that their entire training right now is very much focused on this one disease process that we could have really managed a lot better than we have been. And I think that's the other part that um, for me, um, I see what they're going through and it's just tough. Just, mm -hmm. It's just tough all around. Do you have any advice for people who have either family members or friends who aren't vaccinated, who strongly believe against it? Any advice for people navigating that situation and trying to encourage them to be vaccinated? You know, I always go back to the medicine, right? Viruses aren't political. They're not looking for only Democrats, Republicans, Libertarian, Green Party, liberals. They're, it, it's, it basically is taking advantage of the biologic process. And we know that this vaccine has been in some level of development since the first outbreak of SARS almost a decade or so ago. So this isn't necessarily new technology. This is just the first time we've been able to actually use this information and use our collective um, scientific experience to actually use a vaccine um, that could be uh, that could treat a pandemic. There's a lot that goes into developing vaccines. They're safe. 
almost every physician, every nurse, everybody who's received the vaccine will tell you that it's gotten them out of so many close calls in so many situations in terms of exposures. And the reality is, is that the majority of the patients we see in the hospital now are not vaccinated. And the way to save yourselves and the way to get you out of this is a vaccine. It's safe. I've gotten my two vaccines. These are things that are really comforting uh, for a lot of our patients that if the physicians believe in it so much that they're, they are lining up and they are clamoring to get the vaccines themselves, why wouldn't they feel the same way about their patients. It's like anything else. I would only make appropriate decisions for me and my family if I thought it was medically sound. I would not do something that would be dangerous or um, would potentially make me infertile or make my sister infertile or my elderly mother in her late 70s potentially um, sick for some reason. So it's good evidence. I'm always open to those conversations, but I always go back to the medicine and the science. What are some news sources or people you follow for up-to-date information for people who are curious about learning what's new with COVID, particularly because there's so many institutions, right, that say many things that sometimes contradict one another. I keep going back to the CDC at one point, told everyone not to wear masks. (laughs) Right. It's just so, it's absolutely crazy to think about. And I'm just curious from your perspective, what news sources, specific individuals, or just where are you getting the news that you're able to help to disseminate to other people to help keep them informed of what's latest? No, you're right. It's, it's funny. I, I, I still actually go back to a lot of what the CDC actually puts out. I think what's hard, and this is what's hard in the middle of a pandemic, is that information Nowadays, especially with internet and what have you, it comes fast and it comes furiously. On top, especially early in the pandemic, and especially as more information comes out through um, through the pandemic, there's information that's vetted and there's information that's not vetted. And anything that's put out there by um, large medical organizations like the CDC and what have you is heavily vetted based upon scientific data. So a lot of, but a lot of people go back to at one point this, at one point that. Well, yes. This is what happens when we're in the middle of a pandemic. The information is dynamic and the information comes as we get more information and more evidence comes through. So it looks like we're changing our minds as a medical community, but really what we're doing is we're trying to gather and synthesize that information. So I look at the CDC, I look at the American College of Physicians, I look at the information that comes from the AMA, the American Academy of Pediatrics. Um, a lot of these organizations will not put out information without good scientific data that's out there. So I would be very wary about organizations that put out information and the information starts going down conspiracy theories and starts going down the entire question. They start making recommendations based upon one physician who thought this one thing works well or doesn't work well. There is a place for good academic scientific conversations, but it's not in, that's not in official medical recommendations. And it's always based on the science and it's based upon good research and good evidence. Are you sure we don't have 5G? If we had 5G, it'll make my cell signals so much better. And then I can, my Instagram will come through much faster. It'd be so much better that way. Videos would stream so much faster. I mean, I don't know why people are so worried about 5G because it'll just make our lives easier. I can be on a cruise ship and I can be, I can get some Meanwhile, everyone's just buying the new iPhone, right? 
5G equipped. <laughs> exactly. They're like, I don't need no new iPhone 13. I got me. <laughs> yes, the booster. I was, I was sitting down in a conversation with some friends a few weeks and weekends ago talking about conspiracy theories and which one we thought was the kind of could be or could be not. And we just were just going through the whole list of all the ones that had come out, especially with COVID, Bill Gates trying to track us all. But then we're all being tracked with our cell phones being held <laughs> everywhere. Just the 5G theory and now ivermectin and all these yeah. other naturopathic medications or other alternative medications that aren't necessarily to treat this specific virus being used in conjunction. It's fascinating because people don't have to go through the checks and balances, for example, to have a podcast. And right. there are people with thousands and thousands of followers on a podcast and the people speaking have zero medical experience, expertise, no experts aside from they had done their own research. But right. <laughs> just, just like how Google is set up to give us the news that we are looking for because they mm -hmm. know that they want us to engage with content that is most relevant to us sometimes in the field of trying to uncover something new or something that is different from what we're thinking about the systems that exist aren't set up to do that right. google is not challenging us in any way more so it's trying to confirm and give us that next step and especially with youtube for example there is a bunch of studies that were out on just the nature of all of these videos that play back to back that go into the confirmation bias where if yeah. I see it enough times, then it must be true. <laughs> no, well, the one thing that we do as a professor, this is what I teach my, my residents, my medical students, that our job isn't to take things at face value. Our job is to take what literature is given to us and to analyze it. And we actually have entire courses, entire classes, even all the way through residency and into general practice where we just constantly focus on that skill set. It's a skill set and it takes time to do the research takes time. This is not something that we just take rote. Every physician will tell you that we don't take anything rote. We look at the data, we read it and we, and, and we compare it and we're willing to read data that goes against how, what we think is true in medicine. And if the data looks sound, we're willing to change our mind. But when the data doesn't look sound or looks dangerous, it, it almost behooves us to, to say that this to talk about this is not good. That's where ivermectin, hydrochloroquine. The hard part is that when physicians say, it's, could this potentially work? Just because there's a mechanism that could potentially work, it doesn't mean that in real life it's going to work. That's the divide. And it's so hard to explain that sometimes that being uh, looking at the scientific reasoning behind something, actually seeing what it looks like in the body are two different things. And you, and you just can't. You just can't do it. We know that poison kill bugs, but poisons can kill you too. And so we have to make sure that we're doing the right thing the entire time. Nobody says drink bleach in order to get rid of COVID. If you bleach down your entire table, you're going to kill every virus potentially out there. Yeah. You know, those are the things that, that we try to really try to balance. And not all tests are made equal. Yeah. It's, it's also doing the discerning uh, background check on the research we're looking at to see how it was set up, how many participants were in it versus the converse, which a lot of times people are like, but I know a friend of a friend and their cousin 
<laughs> this happened to them and i'm like ah i know it's, it's crazy, a great study i mean did you really go off of your best friends like best friends brothers dogs gay boyfriends mothers <laughs> <laughs> like sleeping solution and that's why we're drinking bleach today <laughs> yes it's crazy. you know i think it's i think it's fascinating to see how how science and how the pandemic have panned out i always think back to the age crisis in the 1980s and as we were, when we were searching for medications and treatments and, and AZT when it first came out and it was, it, it was a wonder drug and with hope for an HIV vaccine, which um, has hit a few um, stumbles, even of recent, um, that um, through that, through all of that, it, the, the gay community has really looked to physicians and really looked to science to really think, how do we control that? How do we focus on prevention? How do we focus on, on good treatments for those who have early um, early stages of HIV before it progresses to AIDS? And what I, with that experience, I almost thought it was going to be the same the, um, the same thing when people just embrace, well, if you've done this with, with a pandemic like HIV, this could be something we can do easily with COVID. But again, I, I think how it affected the, the gay community, the LGBT community is, is very different than how COVID affected the worldwide community because, it, because of how we had to actually protect ourselves and how ubiquitous it was. Um, and almost to the point, and this is the part that really frustrates me, where people, some people make the argument, well, the, well HIV mostly affected the gay community, but this is now affecting everybody. And so it almost gives us differential that, well, that was just, again, of issue for the LGBT community, but it's not an issue for us. It's going back. I take care of myself. This is my own personal liberty to not put a mask on and cough all over you. And it's almost you have to be responsible as a gay man, but I don't have to be responsible as a person walking around the grocery store coughing my head off with a hundred and four degree fever. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So many layers to it, right? With COVID, a lot of xenophobia with Mm -hmm. people believing that this was an Asian-related virus or flu. And on the flip side, with the AIDS and HIV epidemic slash current day of what's happening, people still to this day believe that AIDS, HIV is a gay disease. When in fact, I believe the majority does not identify as queer or gay including everyone around the world a lot of heterosexual people are afflicted with hiv and aids yes no actually one of the most interesting demographics or elements of hiv is that um it's actually with the elderly population is one of our larger uh, larger group um, because for a time there hasn't been a focus on you know safe sex practices um, over the age of 65 especially heterosexual couples because the only thought is i don't have to get pregnant but that conversation of yeah, but you can still get gonorrhea, chlamydia, syphilis, <laughs> hepatitis, HIV. That's that doesn't discriminate if you are seventy-five or if you are are twenty-seven. I, I think there's this weird there there is this dichotomy. You know, naturally, people are going to underestimate their overall risk with a lot of disease, and so this is the reason that the only way to combat our underestimation of our risk is to really protect everyone in an effective way. And I mean, that's why we, we push safe sex practices amongst all, all adolescents and all young adults. That's why we do talk about masking and COVID. This is why we are talking about uh, making sure that even as simple as making sure that you, we check your blood pressure when you see the doctor. There's so many things that we do on a preventive basis in order to reduce those risks. It's like seatbelts. You wear a seatbelt when you drive. Back in the 1980s, that was like the worst thing in the entire world. But now that, but we do it now and we see 
fewer deaths from car crashes. Mm-hmm. When we're on the precipice of change, of big change, it's really hard for many people to adapt. But as a species, adaptation is how we survive. And we have to change certain ways of being if we want to continuously thrive alongside what's happening with the world. The unfortunate part also is just a lot of the underserved communities, those who are uninsured, those who don't have enough resources, whether it's money, time, are all afflicted and get hurt by COVID substantially greater than so many other people. And especially here in New York City, the communities that are largely populated by BIPOC communities have been ravaged by COVID. We can also start to recognize how it is not made equal for everyone and that we have to do better in that system too. Mm-hmm. No, no, definitely. Especially during the beginning of COVID, there was a really great uh, study looking at where COVID was mostly affecting and it affected mostly the Asian communities mm-hmm. in New York around Flushing and, and Brooklyn, and then also the Bronx, which is mostly our mm-hmm. um, African-American and um, Latinx communities. Mm-hmm. It's impressive because Manhattan, compared to the rest of the five boroughs, was disproportionately not as well, not as much affected. One other topic that we had chatted before was around, especially in the height of COVID, accounts such as Gaze Over COVID and all of these <laughs> accounts popping up to have a deeper discussion on some of the practices by queer folks. And while queer folks are now much more vaccinated, there was a time when people were still out partying at circuit parties and traveling the world. And there are a lot of people within the queer community also who are butting heads with that as a concept too. And first question is, where do you think this even came from? <laughs> um, there's, there's a few theories out there about the gay community, right? And just about sexual minorities in general. And one of the most important elements of, as uh, for us in, especially in the gay community, is that sen- is that sense of community involvement, right? Now, there's community part- participation versus community involvement, but that so much of our definition now of being gay has been about being together, right? The circuit parties, white party here in Miami, all the other parties that, that were popping up all over the place. You, um, you see all the Instagram accounts where people are going to Puerto Vallarta and the height of COVID. But I think for a lot of us, being a part of the gay community has been defined to some extent about coming together in a lot of these parties where, where the vast majority of the attendees within the parties are of the LGBTQ community in, in, in many cases of the, of the uh, circuit community. And I think that's where that with that entire drive, well, now that we're in the pandemic and that uh, belonging to the community and that actual social interaction that required physicality was no longer there. And maybe back to our own individual lives where we were the vast minority that sense of isolation really kicked in. And there, there was a recent survey from the Human Rights Commission, Rockefeller Foundation, that really brought that to light where during the pandemic, almost 60% of LGBTQ identifying uh, individuals felt overly isolated. And I think that was the big impetus where you're seeing where there are those who recognize this is very much almost harkened to the, to the HIV pandemic where we have to protect ourselves, we have to follow what the, what the science and the medicine tells us to do. But then the flip side to that is because we've lost a sense of community, 
um, because that physicality was so important. Um, you, you see a lot of members of the gay community then starting um, to take risky behaviors, but really trying to decide between which risk were they willing to take, right? Were they willing to, at work and in their normal social lives, minimize that risk, but then still, but still maintain that sense of community, or were they going to maintain things on from a social distance standpoint? And I think this, this is a hard part. This was the tension that we saw within the gay community. As much as you want to say, please, we, if we just isolate for a little bit more, you guys, we can come back together. We can go back to circuit parties. We can do all of that. But not, but not everybody felt that they can actually maintain their own mental health without being able to do that again. But that's, I think this is also one of the driving forces for why we were seeing so many members of the LGBT community actually getting vaccinated because they saw the best way to actually reestablish that sense of community belongingness was to actually get vaccinated so that we can come back together again. So it was just gay pride here in Miami Beach on last weekend. And you definitely got that sense where now that the vast majority are vaccinated, that there is a sense of belongingness and, and community participation as well as community belonging. But I, I think that's the dynamic. I mean, as a, as a physician, I'll be honest, it, it was shocking um, that so many people were going and getting together or having these parties. Or, you, know, you would count, you're like, oh, there's over 50 people at this pool party. What I didn't get was the need to take photos <laughs> and put it all over your Instagram feed, your Instagram story. I just, I was like... One, like you're taking risky behaviors, it's all on you, but this nonchalant to parade it, I, I was like, you're gonna get you're gonna get eaten a lot. And, and people saw it and they posted it and and the funny story is a lot of the people on Gays Over COVID, I I know <laughs> through like friends or mutual connections and I was like, Yeah, it's <laughs> there would be the type of people to I know <laughs> it's funny because, you know, there's plenty out there and, and, and you saw people calling people out, oh, that person nurse, that, that person works in, in, in the healthcare and, and the healthcare system. And why would they even do this? And I think this also harkens back to a little bit about, about how does the gay community also use a lot of these social media platforms and where does this actually um, fit into the overall pathology that exists within a gay community? There is really no reason to post that you're going to on PV or that you're going to Provincetown or what have you. But then there was this need to actually demonstrate that you're there and, and that I think um, unfortunately led to ostracizing members of our community, but at the same time perpetuated some elements of, wow, I'm not part of that either. And it, it just builds upon the pathology that exists within our community that nobody seems to break, nobody seems to want to break either. Mm. And except for some, except for many of us who now recognize how damaging, we always talk about how damaging Instagram is and what have you. Yeah. But um, unfortunately, I think in our community right now, it's almost um, come to a head, especially with gays over COVID, both the hashtag as well as Instagram account. <laughs> and and I, I think it's, it's, fa it's fascinating, it's sad, because it does split the community, it, it almost creates this uh, this witch hunt for those who decided not to go with the protocol. But then it's also very quick and easy to forget once everybody's able to come out. It's fascinating. I, I hope it doesn't divide us more or create more problems uh, because we as a community are very strong. But at the same time, unfortunately, it does within our community does create the sense of otherness, which we know exists anyway. We talk about tribes all the time in the gay community. And this almost creates a separate tribe those who decide to maintain the 
COVID protocols versus those who don't. It's a status on all of the dating apps, right? Vaccinated or unvaccinated. That's how that you, you make a decision as to whether um, you're going to meet somebody or hook up with somebody based upon your vaccination status. So it's an interesting interplay of the overall social situation mm. right now. And you <laughs> mentioned it's just the, there's that level of privilege too where people who have the affordance to fly to Puerto Vallarta but also follow all the protocols let's say they were able to get vaccinated before everyone else and then they're like oh but I'm vaccinated all this Instagram really hyper accelerates this othering of one another playing into greed playing into envy playing into all these toxic emotions that drive engagement on the platform and I believe I saw a research report that was published a few weeks back that studied the impact of Instagram on teen girls and saw a huge, a big enough indicator that Instagram was actually extremely detrimental to mental health, especially for young women mm -hmm. as a platform. Oh, it definitely is. And I think the other part that we have to be very careful about, especially in our community, is how important images. And, and this is, again, one of the situations where image can either make you or break you. But then there's this theory of our interminority stress theory, where, uh, where even within the gay community, um, there's undue stress put on individual um, people because we put so much status based upon attractiveness, masculinity, wealth, what have you. And that's exactly what we see with a lot of these Instagram stories. That's what we see also with the issues with a gaze over COVID because not everybody had that privilege. Not everybody could do that. And even when things people were being vaccinated, not everybody had the privilege immediately to be able to get vaccinated, uh, not only in the United States, but throughout the world. It's almost <laughs> a, an overt sense of that disparity that exists when you can see all of us going to PBR, we're going to Fire Island, yet less than 1% to 2% of people in many sub-Saharan African nations haven't received the COVID vaccine. And you're like, oh my God. And now all we're worried about right now is trying to figure out what's the next time I'm going to PV. Uh, that it makes, it's very, it's mind-boggling in, in many respects. It's quite startling. The, the concept of being visually appealing or wealthy is, is a very elusive attribute to chase because oftentimes we have a mindset where if we're more as like beautiful enough rich enough buff enough whatever it is that we will somehow escape the marginalization of being queer yes. being asian or whatnot but the reality is you don't escape it because this is your identity and this is who you are period and right. I, for sure, speaking from my experience, I definitely chased that for a long time because I had felt all these pressures of being marginalized. I just wanted to not be marginalized so much, not wanting to feel discrimination and believing that it was all up to me to have to work twice, three times as hard, either in the gym or in the workplace to escape it. But yeah. that's a false sense of reality, or it's a huge fallacy that once we come to grips and understand, it's just a part of us, at least for myself, it's helped build a much healthier relationship mm -hmm. with myself, my work, 
my health, and also who I invite around me. Not, <laughs> you know, everyone who looks exactly like a clone replica of me <laughs> surrounding <laughs> me like in a Speedo, right? Like a typical Fire Island or a Provincetown photo. And, and that was me for the longest time. And it was something that I was proud of. But looking back now, I just see somebody who just wanted to feel so included but also wanted to not face prejudice or discrimination but wasn't aware that it, it wasn't through just visual or monetary means there's an interesting theory out there talking about sexual minority stress theories very similar to the minorities but it, it is that entire sense that um especially um, when you're teenagers and when you're um, young adults, we, we have these negative outcomes in our health because we're managing a lot of our own discrimination, victimization. We're also managing our own internal homophobia. And the way to do that is to create this unhealthy sense of yourself, um, whether it is the visual, whether it is through, through drug or what have you, whether it is through unhealthy party plan, party pa patterns or, or how we, our, how we manage our sexual lives. And it leads to a lot of negative outcomes. And a lot of it has to do with how that initial coming out process and, or how you define yourself. And I think that's that struggle is so real that once we have a little more control of ourselves, it, it could either be helpful. So that's where community can be helpful, right? We as a gay community, we're able to do things together to help each other out, but that's where it can be detrimental, um, where it can actually exacerbate um, um, all, a lot of our pathologies. And that's where a lot of the minority stress really comes from, where I see you and you may be this unbelievably ripped guy, so I have to do the same thing, but that causes me stress. I'm going to do things to myself that may not be healthy, and I'm going to value you as somebody um, that I want to achieve, or I'm going to follow somebody else on Instagram who's going to be able to be there. And it just builds upon itself over and over again. And breaking that cycle uh, is tough. And it, I would almost say it starts when kids are the most vulnerable, but it also comes from, as we grow older, how we as a community starts really looking at where these images and how they actually affect us and how we're actually going to manage that. We've spent so many decades getting to where we are today in order to get to protect our rights and to be able to marry and be able to do the things that we want to do. But what I'm seeing is that now we're doing things that's almost detrimental to our own community and it's beginning to come to a head and we have to find a way rebalance ourselves and uh, i talked to many of my um, older gay friends and they're like we're not into that anymore because we saw how unhealthy it was and we decided mm -hmm. there's a better way to love, our, love ourselves it's like well, what would you tell your 20 year old self like, i would tell them to stop to not do it but i don't know how to tell them that <laughs> that's something to ponder about how would i tell I just like, don't <laughs> just just <Right>. don't <laughs> right but how are you gonna do that you're gonna be uh, like you should stop doing all those things. Yeah, I know yeah. it looks pretty now, but you're gonna you're not gonna like it in 20 years. Yeah. <laughs> it's just hard to do. And, but but I think a lot of that has to do with where the value comes in. How do we better help us manage a lot of the, this, this this inner conflict that we have with and and what have you? And how do we how do we better support our community from that standpoint? Yeah, and multiple layers: right? fat shaming, racism. We all hold it as a part of existing in the system that it is perpetuated by. What I've come to realize is 
all of our freedom, our liberation, and our self-acceptance is all tied to one another. Why do we keep hurting each other? Why do we keep judging each other? Why do we go on dating apps and say the most hurtful things to other people that just don't look like us? Mm -hmm. And people are brazen and feel bold enough feeling the right to because they're like, oh, but I'm not attracted to you. But at the end of the day, that reaction, that visceral negative reaction is deeply rooted in this othering, this racism, homophobia, fat phobia, ableism that... I, I really think as a community, we should take a deep look. Otherwise, we continue to walk around with knives, stabbing each other, believing that that is somehow the way that's going to free us all. Yeah, and it has a real health outcome. I worry about it because we do have a huge problem with mental health in our community. Because we're dealing with all this pain and because we are dealing with all the otherness, as that we do a lot of things for escapism in order to dull the pain or to just enhance other experiences that we think are going to bring us joy and forever has, but it doesn't, right? My first job as a physician is to protect everybody, protect you as a patient, protect everyone here as a community. But at the same time, there are so many other bigger questions, like you're saying, how do we peel back the layers? How do we actually tackle those layers? effectively. And then it was just like when we think about any of our marginalized communities is that this is not just us, it's that this is something that we need our allies to help us with. Because the entire conversations about how our transgender youth or, or gay and lesbian youth are actually being treated is not because of just within ourselves, it's everyone else. I live in the state of Florida and there is a new transgender sports um, bill that, that came, to, came into law literally on the first day of, of pride, <laughs> which was the most ironic thing ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's one of those situations where we really need to have these deep conversations. I only understand, but really think about what are the interventions we're going to do. Yeah. And it's tough. These are not, of course, these are not easy answers. I, I wish I had the answer. If I did have the answer, I'd be much richer than I am now. But <laughs> <laughs> And it's one of those things that because we're so close-knit with each other as an LGBTQ community, one would think that we would be the first to champion one another and uplift one another. But sometimes we just get so caught up in our own narratives and our own little bubble that we fail to realize or fail to open up space for other people who exist within our community who have just a much... uh, more difficult time navigating the world than we do. And I always remind myself that regardless of where I am, that I experience privilege to all different sorts of degrees. And it is my duty as a conscious human being and as an individual to be aware of that privilege and to leverage it for people who don't have it and even just like looking into the bigger broader world there are people who face persecution just by being queer in many countries around the world and we are just so lucky for those of us you and myself 
living here in America, I just keep reminding everyone is we don't pick and choose who we're born to, where we're born into, and that we have to be really conscientious of people who didn't get to choose and that they got a different pair of hands. Oh, I completely agree. It's interesting. I like how you put that, that we do that, especially here in the United States and in many countries of the Western world, we have this privilege of being able to to express what it means to be gay and to almost find it for ourselves, right? Because in even in many other countries, being gay is being um, also is defined a certain way that's not necessarily defined by who we are. And that there is, we, we do have a community, we do have a society that does, for the most part, accept that gender is much more fluid than we think it is, and that uh, sexuality is much more fluid than we think it is. Because um, it's interesting, when you, when you mentioned that, it, one of the thoughts I always had is, what if I grew up in the Philippines, where I, my mother and my father are from? What would my life be like? Would I have come out the way I came out? Would I be the same gay physician I am now, or the gay person, or the gay man, or you know, doing the things I'm doing now, or would it be different? And you know, I I, I don't know because of you know many different factors and like how what family is like, family structures, and um, and what have you. Be marrying here in the United States as a gay man is not just a theoretical or after or anything. It's something you can do, but I can't do that back in the Philippines and and those type of things. And it makes me feel really lucky from that standpoint. But it also, I, I always go back to, but then at the same time, it still feels like a fight because there are still people who are trying to take it away. That's what's so fascinating. And I'm like, I'm not trying to take it away from you. Why are you trying to take it away from me? That makes no sense. The, these were all rights that we and, and beliefs I thought we all had here in this country. But then at the same time, why are people introducing things and introducing laws and bills and and spouting all these different thoughts that are really just trying to take away the things that, that otherwise everybody else um, has who consider themselves heteronormative. It's fascinating to me. Especially with what's happening around the country. Good example is female reproductive rights literally being rolled back decades and decades of progress. What I think is... <laughs> There's just too much privilege that people experience <laughs> that maybe people just need to have a harder time in life so they can just focus back on themselves <laughs> and stop focusing on everyone else. <laughs> I was talking with some friends. I was like, maybe we just need this thing where once you hit a certain amount of wealth, you get a trophy and you just reset back to zero <laughs> and you just figure it out. Wealth inequality is getting worse. And I, I do think... All of it is interconnected with one another. And when people have, it's like the Maslow hierarchy of needs, right? You have all these things that are taken care of. You, you've, you're you uh, well-fed. You have all the money to afford everything for you, your family. And, and now people look outwards to, okay, what can I do to impact my community, the larger world? And... Hmm. Yeah. yeah, we just people need to have a harder life so they can <laughs> become much more cognizant. I feel lucky that I live in the United States. I still feel like you know there are still plenty of things that I have the freedom and the what I say freedom, but I also say that I have protected to be able to do right. 
all the protection by, by state and U.S. Gov, um, laws and what have you that I can do the things that I think are important that, that matter to me. You know, at the same time, I also get it here in the United States that it's even that we're still trying to make it better, right? That it's not perfect and it's not better. Like this entire sense that to have a perfect society is almost a misnomer. That we have that that there's always a sense of constant improvement, but that we as society is dynamic, right? How we define what a normal society is that is constantly changing. Quote, quote unquote was acceptable in the 1800s is different than what is acceptable in the 1900s and as it is in today. Um, but that we're constantly thinking about how to improve ourselves. What I always ask people is when you start thinking about moving backwards, are you moving backwards because that's what's comfortable to you or is it because it's better? Because comfortable is not necessarily better. Nobody says, let's go back to leaded gasoline because it works better. <laughs> but at the same time, when it comes to some of these social norms where we're talking about uh, man and woman getting married, or we're talking about well, women's rights, or we're talking about uh, same-sex couples being able to adopt uh, from any adoption agency, and you start harking back to, well, back in my day, there's so many things that were so painful to other people back in the day that to use those statements would assume that you're also taking whatever you perceived as good, also with which what really was bad for people. And that's what's so frustrating. Mm. I was watching a TikTok video and it made me laugh so hard uh, where this woman was saying <laughs> that she lives every day happier now because she's comparing <laughs> this day and age to the dark ages. <laughs> and <laughs> that, oh, look, we're so much more than the dark. And, and her whole video was just on this concept of perspective and shifting it. And I was like, yeah, we've, of course, we've made progress in the past, like a hundred years. But to, to that point, I always think that we can improve better legislation, ways of being so that other lived experiences that we may not even understand have mm -hmm. a better chance of being free and having access to live a life here in America or in the world. Yeah. There's so many people, especially with folks who experience disability, for example, just even to this day and age, people with certain experiences with certain disability can't even get a meal, can't even get from point A to point B, can't even leave a subway at a certain stop. It's, it's some of those things that when we are in the privilege, we sometimes aren't aware that it is an issue. And mm. I, I think of the same way, especially with those cisgender, heterosexual, it's just all like so many things are coming up and they're struggling with, or even for us, things that we struggle with because we don't have that lived experience going back to the point is I, I think we can always keep doing more work mm -hmm. to ensure i mean this is my version of life liberty is just the ability for somebody to be born in any way they exist and to live a life experiencing it as similar as somebody else and that equity to have the resources supplies and the support to be able to live a life one of you ever seen that meme but they talk about imagine your age how old you are now subtracted from the year that you were born to see how old you were somebody was your age when you were born so for example i'm 41 born in 1980 so if somebody was born was my age in 1980 
they would be they were born in 1939 and i always i like it's such a weird mind game for me to think about that because i'm a pediatrician right one of the things i do is i work in a newborn nursery and i see babies that are born and i think all right this newborn baby don't know what he or she or whichever gender they that, that they feel comfortable with will become when they grow up but one of my goals 41 years from now they're born is that all the whatever they become or how they decide to become will they experience the same level of discrimination hate barriers that somebody does right now just because of who they are who they want to become and so every day i'm thinking did somebody think that same thing when they were 41 or somebody who was born in 1939 and it's such a it's such a weird interesting mind exercise or what have you but for me it that's what kind of helps me put into perspective what am i doing why do i talk about these issues why do i talk about lgbtq health why do i talk about american experience because i know that this experience can be better i know that this experience can be better for people in the future but i also know that if, if we don't do things right it could be worse for them and my mission or <laughs> hope is that it's not going to be that way so what am I going to do to do what am I doing now to make that different for the That is a really good point. I I have high hopes especially looking at Gen Z and the younger generation and there was also a recent research paper done where I believe one third of participants Gen Z identified as queer and it's just it's crazy to think about in comparison to the U.S. census for example uh, which teeters in the single digit percentages for me the shocking realization is there are so many people who still to this day are not living their version of their truth they're mm -hmm. living this caricature of who they think they need to be because we're all born into inequity and sometimes we play these characters to escape it not realizing that it's deviating away from who we truly want to be i have high hopes just seeing at least some of those statistics the way people are talking about sexuality gender expression and the lack of tolerance to prejudice discrimination in that regard and especially the hetero gen z folks who are champions for their friends who identify as queer i just really hope the <laughs> older generation will one day realize that it isn't about trying to affirm this concept of your truth of this reality that you live in for other people but it's trying to figure out how you can let go of these things that you once held so tightly to so that other people can be free, but you can also be free. And all these structures that we place on ourselves, racism, ableism, body shaming, homophobia, it's just how much effort is it to hold all of these? Yeah. For us to be able to have to judge people, that's also even more effort. It just all of this hate and ways of discriminating other people is just so taxing exhausting and i i hope one day more and more people especially as they're older will open their eyes and realizing you know what's the point <laughs> what's <laughs> I know. the point
it's funny because like it's always that entire thing of it's just easier if you just keep it simple like yeah. but people aren't simple we're we, we are complex <laughs> beings right that yeah i mean we have different wants and desires and more importantly we, we are different beings from person to person i think and we should celebrate that we shouldn't try to put people into buckets there, there was a recent study that looked at well, it's a youth behavioral health survey adolescent like 12 to 19 in 14 different areas around the united states they found about 12 percent of teenagers um, identified as lgbtq which is from that particular study it actually showed that those numbers are continuing to increase every year and that in general our younger generations of folks are definitely much more open why i love this is because you know when i think about my own coming out oh i remember in in high school um, we had a class of like 220 people and I maybe knew one or two other kids who identified as gay. And then I was an out, but I knew that I was gay. How early did you know? Because I always am fascinated by this. Yeah. So I probably, so I looked at old pictures of myself when I was a kid and I was like, oh, how did I not know when I was six? But, <laughs> <laughs> but I probably first recognized that boys were probably more interesting to me than I thought they were probably when I was 12 at the very beginning of puberty. And it was like that sense of denial all throughout high school. It's like, no, 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 no. I'm gonna have girlfriends. I'm gonna, I'm gonna get married when I turn 26. I was thinking about my wedding. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm thinking about my wedding. This is not what a 15 year old boy thinks about. But you know, through college and high school, I never had a real girlfriend, like anything long-term. I dated a few girls, but I always said, oh, but I wanna go to medical school. And that's why I don't have time for girls. And I did that through medical school. I said, I don't have time for girls. And I'm a late bloomer, so I didn't actually come out until my early 30s. I told a few friends that I think I'm bisexual, but I think I want to still marry, get married to a girl, even though deep down inside, I really felt that was also a lie. And, that, and I kept telling myself, maybe I could live with this lie for the rest of my life. I'll just say I'm bisexual, I'll get married, but I'll just, uh, but if I, as long as I keep the, the part where I'm attracted to men on the down low as much as possible, I'll be fine. It was, but it was when I, be, when I finished all my training and I realized that was such, this is such a terrible lie. You can only act as somebody else for so long. That's where I was like, I, I have to start being honest with myself and start telling people. So I told one of my good friends in residency who graduated with me. Um, and he was, he's also gay. And I was like, I think I'm just gay. He's like, really? Yeah, no, I think I'm gay. I don't, there's nothing else ab about who I am that would be anything else but that. Um, and that process took me 30 years. And I always look back and I think, would my story be different if I grew up now? If I was that 12 or 13 year old kid and I'm in middle school and going through high school, you know, when I had more of that support and more of that presence where I felt that there was a community and we talked about community earlier, that there was that community belonging that I would feel comfortable saying, you know what, I'm just gay and that's okay. But I think become like my family, it's funny, my family, they're, they've accepted it. Well, all my friends have said, I've been lucky that I've not had anybody who has shunned me. I'm not, anybody says, I will never, I, I can't be friends with you because we're, because you're gay. Actually, one of my best friends in medical school, super heteronormative man, super straight. And 
when I told him, he, first thing he said to me, he called me, JT, I, thought, I wish you would have told me earlier. I am so sorry for all the jokes I told, <laughs> all the gay jokes. I'm like, it's okay. You're fine. You're fine. You didn't know, but more importantly, I didn't say anything. But I think the hardest one has still been my parents. And a lot of it is because oh, you have 30 odd years of their lives where they think their son is going to get married to a woman and all those type of things. And it's, I think it's still hard because um, a friend of mine is a, is a psychologist. And one of the things she says is when you go through the coming out process, it's almost like a death process to some extent for it's your parents. Warning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And sometimes for some parents, it does take a lot to process through. Yeah. You just have to give them time. You, you can't, obviously you can't deny it. But the most important thing is that you still have a relationship with them and that you're still communicating with them. But as long as you, you still keep to your true self, it'll come slowly with time. And I think that's been one of the big adages for me where I, I don't make it something special. It's just a part of me. I just talk about it or I just say, hey, I'm dating this guy. And it's still hard because my mother every so often will say, my father's passed away since. My mother will say, so when are you going to get married? I'm like, I'm not getting married yet because I haven't found the man I want to marry. It's like, oh, are you sure you don't want to marry a woman? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> very sure <laughs> oh, that ship has sailed um, <laughs> but I, I think it's been I think it's one of those that she may not be comfortable with it completely but that if, if the, the the more you make it for me the more you make it something that's just a part of you you can deny it or ignore it and so that's the part that I think all parents have to work through I have been lucky that my parents, they, um, they still love me. My father passed away. He still loved me. We still, my mother and I still have a good relationship, but it's still a process that they're, that they're going through. That's complex, especially with the Asian community. A big realization for me has been to be more conscious of how I struggled and realizing that the same struggle is also on our family members mm-hmm. who are necessarily queer themselves. And in this concept of just struggling with the idea of queerness, homosexuality, being gay, we all hold it, especially as a, a very conservative Asian culture for most of Asian. And sometimes we don't realize that all the little kind of boosts that we had along the way whether it was a chosen family uh, other queer friends that had helped us to become more aware that sometimes our parents don't have and they could be surrounded by a lot of people who are continuously upholding the heteronormative culture i just had more compassion especially for my mother in the past few years. She still struggles with the the very Western narrative is fuck your parents who don't believe you and support you and love you, right? Uh, But then you sit back and you realize you're like, but they're also struggling. There's violence, emotional, physical, totally different conversation. But in regards of just struggling to accept it and just struggling with a concept, I, I don't think that's something you just, throw away especially when it's family and just figure out how much bandwidth we have to also help them heal and help yeah. them learn these difficult concepts yeah. and again I, I remind myself like my mom's from taiwan both our family come from countries that at the time right let's go 40 years back like 30 years back right like 
who was queer out and proud in <laughs> our countries, Philippines, Taiwan. Even still to this day, people are still shunned. There's still this stigma that still exists with yeah. many parts of Asia. And especially for Asian families, sometimes the parents are trying to protect their kids yeah. and are like, no, I don't want this happen to you. And sometimes they don't realize that. This isn't something we can change. <laughs> Otherwise, we would have done it. Like, why would I not have wanted to be straight? Why would I have wanted to be tormented all my life? <laughs> I think it was interesting. You mentioned protecting. Yeah. One of the things that my parents, my dad was very worried about was my safety. And you know, I think one of the things that they've been, that they're very worried about is our safety because they have seen the violence. They have seen what societies can do to marginalized communities. For many of our immigrant families, they come to the United States. And one of the things that, especially during uh, the big migrations in the 60s and 70s, was trying to assimilate as much to U.S. Yeah. culture. And um, Otherwise, what I remind people too is if they didn't, they would have been kicked out. Yeah. So it's also like a survival mechanism to have to assimilate in that fashion to stay. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and I think it's tough. It's part of the reason that my parents were like, we, uh, that uh, we never really learned our native tongues as well, um, because we we're really worried about making sure that we can speak English fluently. Um, I remember when I applied for my college, my college applications, I didn't say I was Asian. I said I was other. But I think the assimilation is such a big component to it. And that coming out as gay goes against the grain. And then on top of that, for me, I had 30 years to really process through who I was. And it's almost unfair to be like, all right, I did it for 30 years. You have to do it in the next two weeks. <laughs> layers and layers of complexity, especially in the Asian culture, where it's very community driven. And mm -hmm. there's also the perception, right, of what are other people going to think? What are other family members going to think? What are all the community members going to think? And that goes into the decision making process of is this something that I should accept or not? I don't have a recipe that allow us to bypass all of this. Otherwise, so many of us would have had a better time. But the only thing that I could think of is just becoming much more compassionate with the process, mm -hmm. with each other, to ensure we have protection, we have safety, we have space. I think that was another big lesson for me, too, was... After having coming out to my mom and she kind of struggled with it, space was really beneficial to that regard of yeah. just being apart. I think she's kind of slowly turning a leaf after a handful of years, but it's still a process for her. It's good to have space where she's able to just process it in her own time, mm -hmm. at her own speed. Yeah, I think what's also really helpful is to show them that you're okay going back to the safety but once you come out you, it almost like you said it was like a mourning process right so it's the end of that world and so you almost want to demonstrate that you're going to navigate they're going to navigate this world where i'm a gay man i'm doing fine i'm successful all those types of things and that we're going to have ups and downs but at the end of the day we're going to be okay and i think the more that, that experience becomes part of the entire conversation i think it does help because our parents and families who are struggling a little bit more time. I, I struggle with the entire kind of what you're saying where, where you automatically just disown the family because they don't accept your lifestyle because 
unless it's abusive, right? Unless you are like physically or you are in a situation where um, you've been completely shunned or um, your life is a danger, that's a different conversation. But the family struggle, you have to let that process go because you, you went through that process. You had to be, you had to go through it yourself. And that's where it also becomes a question about going through the community and being able to tell friends and family members and family friends and what have you and just making it part of the conversation. I remember when I told my cousin's mother she didn't really believe it and she kept saying oh jt's new man friend like no it's, it's his boyfriend oh yeah no he's got he, that 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 nice man who's always there they're just <laughs> and but it's a constant reminder that this is not a phase it's not just like something i think is funny but that this is something that's just who i am and that this is part of who our life is other people have to mourn that side of us, that image of us, that right. heterosexual version of us. I don't know what <laughs> I don't know what the heterosexual Stephen would be like, but yeah, mourn him, <laughs> please. Yeah, the heterosexual JT yeah. just wore just wore really terrible T-shirts all the time. <laughs> <laughs> please mourn him. <laughs> <laughs> I would tell you it was much easier to get up in the morning. Oh, who cares? <laughs> we'll put out the rosary. <laughs> I think we, it's important to not downplay like how stressful it was to fake who you were, like to be, like to go on dates or to talk about how you're going to get married and and create this alternate life that you just didn't believe was going to be true that you were going to have to survive. I give a lot of credit to those men and women who come out late in life because they had to do it for so long. And I know many of them will say they love the people that they were with and they love their children. They love that. But it's also a lot to be able to then say, but this is not who I am. And to come out as a gay or lesbian, transgender, or what have you later in life, that's such a huge sacrifice and such a huge reaffirmation that I, I give credit to them and I think it's something that a lot of people say isn't that terrible and I always say no it's not terrible but it, it is something that we have to help them support them through because um, you're asking somebody to be their true selves and you're also asking a family to recognize that their true selves wasn't what they thought was it's really hard and what I always tell people is it's never too late it's yeah. never too late and we can make amends and start tomorrow in a different place. And the sooner we can let go of the shackles of the, the image or the way of being that we think we need to be, we can start to let in a different type of future that is more aligned with who we really want to become. Any last words of wisdom, advice that you want to leave people with? Yeah. So first off, wear a mask. <laughs> yes, so, I think one of the things that for all the listeners out there, going through the experience of being a gay Asian man and coming out and going through that as an adult um, is, and for many of us, is going to be a struggle and is a struggle. And one of the things I always say is that there are people out there, there are resources out there that are um, there to help you and you um, and to reach out. It feels lonely, even amongst your gay friends and queer friends, because your story is different and everybody's story is different. It can be lonely. 
having those conversations, having that community, finding those communities, I think is so important for us. Just don't let that community be detrimental to you. Don't use that community as that entire sense of you want the community to support you, but don't feel like you have to compete against them. And that's the part that I worry about sometimes, kind of going back to the image and what have you. Mm. But you'll know when you find your community, you know when you'll find the people that can help you with that. If not, there are great resources out there. The other thing I always say is that if, if from a healthcare standpoint, if you feel like your doctor is not hearing you, there is the Gay Lesbian Medical Association that actually has a list of, of gay-friendly, either gay physicians or gay, uh, or gay and lesbian allies, physicians and healthcare providers that is willing and open to help you. And um, that's available online. That's awesome. Yes. You don't have to go through it alone. And there are all these people willing and waiting to support you. Yes. Yeah. We're waiting. Come. come, come. <laughs> <laughs> and for anyone who wants to get in touch with you or follow you and your work, how can they best find you? You can find me on the internet. Just Google my name. And then you can also find me on social media. It's John John 9802006. What is the significance of that? Those are every step of my graduation. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't come up with a more creative handle. I went with that. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Well, thank you so much for being here, having this conversation. Thank you for all the work you do as a physician healthcare practitioner, really being on the front lines, especially right now and helping people navigate through this amidst <laughs> a lot of difficulties <laughs> and controversies. And I'm just really appreciative to share the space with you today to talk about these topics. And hopefully we have you again, maybe in a bit, and we see where everything is with COVID. <laughs> <laughs> like jt nothing has changed <laughs> <laughs> like what is the entire podcast is ditto 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 <laughs> <laughs> well thank you so much and for everyone listening thank you for listening and hope you have a wonderful rest of your day and for it to be a little bit more mindful with some of the things we talked about and so with that we'll talk to you later <laughs> bye now bye